Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast, brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another episode of the City Law School's Law and Society podcast with me, Dr. Adrienne Young. And me, Dr. Sabrina Germain. Welcome to episode number eight on being a yellow woman in the time of COVID-19 with Dr. Sarah Liu. Hi, Sarah. It's really lovely to have you on the podcast today in faraway lands to discuss the very important issue around race, specifically of the East and Southeast Asian ethnicity and the pandemic. Hi, Adrian and Sabrina. What a pleasure to be here today. Sarah, could you introduce yourself for our listeners, please? Sure. Um, I'm Dr. Sarah Liu. I'm a lecturer in gender and politics at the University of Edinburgh. My research focuses um, broadly on the cross-national comparison of the role of political context, namely women's political representation, um, immigration in the media, and women's movements on the gender gaps in political behavior and public opinion with a specific focus on Asia. Amazing. Then you are, of course, a very good guest for our episode today on being, interestingly, a yellow woman during our pandemic at the moment. Uh, But we want to start off the episodes like we do all of them, asking our guests a big question. And we know that you're not a lawyer, so this might feel a bit tough and we're not expecting a legal answer like we haven't expected from any of our non-law guests. But how would you, as a non-lawyer, define the concept of law? Um, that's an excellent question and also quite um, somewhat challenging for, for a non-lawyer. But to me, I think the law is a rule or a principle that is um, institutionalized and that is a normative to which people abide. Um, and I think the law acts to maintain some sort of um, social order. Um, and I'll, But then, however, because laws are also constructed by human beings, I believe they're also not perfect and they can have many intersectional consequences on different groups of people, depending on their identities and, and their backgrounds, um, such as gender, race, citizen status, uh, sexuality, and etc. So I think that the law uh, on the surface may apply, may seem like they apl- uh, it applies to everyone equally. So it seems fair, but in reality, the law is often not equitable. That's an excellent answer. We could have been fooled there. Uh, So now that we have that uh, legal question out of the way, which is a relief, I'm sure, uh, we want to explore a bit more uh, uh, your experience during the pandemic. So could we ask you uh, which are the parts of yourself that you consider um, the most important parts of your identity and why so? I think it's really hard to um, define which parts of myself that I consider to be the most important of my identity. Like everyone else, I have multiple identities. I am a woman. uh, I am East Asian. I am a migrant. I am cisgender. I am able-bodied. And all of these identities I possess are intersectional. So it's difficult to say which one outweighs um, the other, right? Uh, In other words, I cannot 
go out or I cannot go to work today and be like, okay, today I'm only going to wear my Asian hat or I'm only going to wear my my woman hat, right? It doesn't really work that way because all my intersect, all my identities are are intersectional. And their importance of each uh, of my identity is fluid and it changes depending on the context. For example, as a member of the UK higher education sector, my migrant status stands out because it limits what I can say or do at my job and how I live my life in the UK, as we know that non-citizens have fewer rights um, than native citizens, right? And um, now I'm, I'm con- conducting field research in Asia, which is where, uh, 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 where I'm dialing from. My racial or ethnic identity doesn't really matter here because almost everyone else here is Asian, right? So um, whereas my racial or ethnic identity really stands out when I'm living and working in the UK. So I think it's really hard to say which um, identity really stands out or which one is most important. I think, like I said, I think it is fluid and it changes depending on, on where we are. That's really interesting. And it's so funny because I think that everything, all the different parts of your identity that you you listed, I would also completely relate to every single one, woman, East Asian, migrant, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, of course, that doesn't mean you and I are necessarily experiencing the same things or that we are the same kind of person or anything like that. And, you know, in the same way, Sabrina also would probably say that she's a lot of these same identities. And I just think it's so great to hear how different parts of yourself can also be so similar to other people. And it is so important to make up all of your identity. Exactly. We're, um, I believe you two are both in London, right? So your experiences in London um, may be very different from my experiences in Edinburgh, Scotland. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's exactly uh, what I was thinking when you were both talking. It's all about context. I think in, it's all about experiences. And I think it's an, an important to understand that the law really um, will impact different experiences, but in very different contexts. And that might be why in certain instances, it doesn't create inequality. And in others, it really does. Or um, even racial perceptions, I think, are exactly the same. It really depends on, on the context, the situation. There's temporality, there's places. So that's very interesting. So on that note, then, given you've now told us, you know, all the different parts of your identity, today's episode is interestingly called Being a Yellow Woman in the Time of COVID-19, which is very much inspired by a piece uh, that you co-authored. And I think that it is really important for our listeners that you will need to explain perhaps the use of this somewhat derogatory term of being yellow. So could you explain to our listeners why you used it in the context of that article or more generally, perhaps? That's an excellent question. I think before I can really explain why I'm trying to claim or reclaim my yellow identity, I must first explain why and how the term yellow has been um, derogatory. So when and um, why and why yellow was first applied to people of East Asian descent is rather um, obscure. We don't really know how it all got started. The process um, occurred probably over, you know, hundreds of years ago. Some scholars have noticed or noted that it's not as if there were people with yellow skin, right? Because if you really think about it, East Asians don't really have yellow skin, right? But the whole idea that yellow equates to Asian, it, it was something that was constructed, again, very much like the law, right? It's very much constructed by human beings. So um, there was a time when there was no such thing as Asian, right? But it all was um, just invented and constructed by people throughout history. 
And throughout history, uh, the Han Chinese, uh, along with other East Asians, have been called yellow. It's a term that was created in the first place to justify the colonial relation of, of dominance and subordinance and the exploitation of the yellow people and the East. There has always been this Western imagination of the yellow people as backwards, um, cunning, weak, and uncivilized. These were characteristics of the yellow people which were assigned by the West to justify their colonial acts. To give you an example of, well, I wouldn't call it recent, but because it, it's been more than 100 years ago. But I guess if you look at the grand scheme of history, it's somewhat recent. In the 19th century, um, Britain, through the use of opium, which they smuggled into, the, into China, created a mass addiction where 12 million Chinese people became addicted. And that weakened, uh, the weakened China lost both wars and had to grant special rights to the Western colonial powers. And this mass addiction um, to opium also helped spawn the racial mystique of the yellow people as morally and physically weak, corrupted, um, stuck in time and feminine in contrast to the Western states as rational, principle developed and masculine. So for as long as Asians have lived in places outside Asia, white people have um, been trying to label us, right? Who we are, what we look like, and how we, how we should act and how we should be described. So my idea is that if we're going to be called yellow anyway, no matter what we do, right? Regardless of whether or not we are the model minority, then we should make then we should make it beautiful and um, reclaim its power. And I particularly want to highlight reclaiming power as yellow people, because if we look at the history of the United States, and I think this is something that has been somewhat other, under the radar for a lot of people, even for people who study social movements, for example. In the 1960s in the, in the United States, where there was a yellow people power movement, it was one of the very first times that these disparate people, Korean Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Japanese Americans, Indian Americans, Laotian Americans, Cambodians, you know, just to name um, a few, grouped themselves under one pan-ethnic identity. So when you have, to me, when you have a, a one pan-ethnic identity, the critical mass brings power. And we see this with the Black Lives Matter movement, where Black people, regardless of where their ancestors come from, right, they don't necessarily identify themselves based on their ethnic group or, or, or country of origin. So I really think that this is now the time to act collectively. And one way in which we could act collectively is to claim this pan-identity as yellow. I think that is so illuminating, Sarah. I never really thought about it like that. As a yellow woman myself, if we're going to use that very empowering term, I always really shied away from it. It's just so rude. And I even took it so far as to really shy away from wearing yellow because I just didn't want to bring that attention to me. And I've always thought in my head, yellow is not my color, those kinds of things. But you know what? Yellow tomorrow is yellow shirts, yellow everything. I'm quite I'm quite fascinated by by this whole I I have to say I'm not as familiar as I am with people of color because I am a woman of color myself but a lot of things of what you're saying resonate with me but also intrigue me because People of color, oftentimes, I know in the UK and in the US, we say that just highlighting ourselves as people or presenting ourselves as people of color, or defining ourselves, removes the, the, the more granular identity of who we are and the different experiences. So, um, you know, Black Panther movement is very different from Black Lives Matter. There's all an array of colors in, in the people of color and their experiences in time, right? So 
I think it's very interesting because you talk about yourself as a woman, a yellow woman, and you don't talk about yourself only as yellow. So what distinctions do you make there? And why is it so important for you to identify as a yellow woman? Again, I think this is where intersectionality is really important, right? A black man's experiences would never be the same as a black woman's experiences, right? So why would we expect a yellow person's experience would, you know, be different from uh, a yellow woman's experience, right? So again, if we look at uh, what happened in history, I think it's particularly important to highlight this idea of yellow woman, because when we look at the history, especially with the 1927 doll exchange mission, which occurred at a time when military tension was rising between the West and the East through the rise of Japan before the World War II, is one such example. In conspiring with a Western state in making military advancement in China, 13,000 Japanese dolls were shipped to the United States as an advancement and as a gesture to, to make peace. So the kimono-wearing, childlike, expressionless, cute doll has since then conflated with the imagery of not just yellow, right? Not just a yellow person, but as a yellow woman, as submissive silent and concealed. So yellow womanhood became reconstructed through the grammar of commodity aesthetics, which has become the dominant cultural symbol of the East Asian woman, uh, whose true self is often um, hidden, covered up, lost and fragile. So a yellow woman's sole purpose oftentimes is to be an object of adoration and comfort, just like the purpose that the, the, the Japanese doll, the, the, the exchange doll, was supposed to serve, an object of peace offering. So such idea of yellow woman is also linked to what goes on in the world today, right? Six Asian women were killed in Atlanta, uh, was it last year? It seems so long ago, but I think it was last year, right? And the suspect, a white man, reportedly told investigators that he had a sexual addiction and viewed their the, the massage parlor in Atlanta as a, quote, temptation that he wanted to eliminate. So people condemned it as a shocking act of violence. And they wonder how such a twisted world uh, worldview came to be. But Asian women, uh, whether it's growing accustomed to negative portrayals of themselves in the media or stomaching um, offhand comments from friends and strangers alike, know that Robert Aaron Long's words were hardly new. And according to experts, right, this ingrained imagery of Asian women as sexual objects can easily spill over into tragedy. So yellow women are really objectified. And this is where yellow woman really, being yellow woman really differs from being a yellow man. So if yellow women are thought of as prostitutes and sex workers, then there are, the, um, there are objects to be purchased, to be had, but not subjects to know and respect and understand. For us, right, we are there for one purpose and one purpose alone. So this conception of Asian women didn't really emerge out of nowhere, right? So it's been, it's been like that historically. Um, I'm happy to talk more about it, but I think I'm going to stop here and I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. But my point is that I think yellow women were characterized and have always been characterized as potentially sexual su subjects. And this is where the femininity of being yellow really shines and differs from being a yellow person. I do have one question for you, Sarah, based on all of that, because it really reminds me of um, the Japanese geishas and how they are in the culture objectified that's the whole yeah underlying culture of that society and i and i wondered if you had anything to say about that that's just the thing the first thing that came to mind i'm, I'm sure you're speaking about that right 
I think it's so interesting that you brought up the example of the Japanese geishas, right? Because in, in, in real history, right? In history, that is how East Asian women or yellow women have been seen. For example, um, dating back to even before the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 in the United States, it banned Chinese immigrants from becoming U.S. citizens. But the United States had passed the Page Act of 1875, which ultimately banned the importation of Asian women who were feared to be engaging in prostitution in the country, whether they were or not, right? So that's a perfect example of how modern day, how the modern day view of um, modern day geishas were actually how yellow women were viewed back in the days, right? They were the substitutes, they were the sexual objects, and then there must be a law to, to ban them because we don't want that in our country or in the United States, I should say, because we're in the context of the UK now. Yes, and let's bring it back. Thank you so much for that great historical context. Let's bring it back to present day. So all of these stereotypes and everything that you're mentioning, how would you say that it relates to the pandemic and COVID-19 in particular, especially around things like rule breaking and maybe law following, especially considering the, the subservient nature of yellow women that you're saying is a stereotype? Um, I think like my, I mentioned before, because historically yellow people have been marginalized, right? And seen as the other, as outsiders. I think a lot of the yellow people in, in the UK, for example, regardless of how many generations there, there have been, right? Um, we are told to follow the rules and we shouldn't cause any attention because we are outsiders, because we are immigrants, right? And I think that is uh, where yellow people really differs from other immigrants in the UK, for example, from France, right, or other uh, European um, countries, right, who are white. And I think because of that pressure, or because of that outsider status, we experience this pressure to maintain our model minority status. Like I said, um, we shouldn't cause any attention. Just to give an example, maybe not in the UK, I came from the United States, this is, that's where I grew up. But as an immigrant, as an outsider in the United States, I was always told by my parents to never cause any attention. My job as a child was to just focus uh, on my studies, you know, so it was a very stereotypical Asian uh, household. I would focus on my studies. I would, you know, get a get good education, get a good job. So even though it's a stereotypical Asian thing to do, but I think what lies behind it is the fact that because we are not meant to really have a voice in society because we are not given a voice. So the best we could do is rely on ourselves to sort of like, I'm using my air quotes here for those of you who can see, see me, to succeed. And another example I could share with you is um, when I was an undergraduate student at a university in the United States, I was the president of the Asian American Association. And there was one time when um, someone on campus made like a racist joke. So as a president of the Asian American Association, I wrote an open letter condemning that behavior. And I thought I would get support, right? Not just from, I thought I would get support from Asian Americans, right? If no one else, and at least my own people. But in terms of support, I actually got a lot of backlash from Asian Americans. People wrote to me in private saying that it was just a joke. Why don't you just let it go? The fact that you've published an open letter is bringing us the attention. We don't want that attention. We just, we are here. Uh, it's a homogenous society. It's a homogenous environment. We are here. We just want to finish our degree in four years time. We don't want any attention. We don't want the spotlight on us. But your open letter has brought the spotlight on us. So I think that 
to me, again, it may be stereotypical, and I'm obviously not speaking on behalf of, you know, all yellow people in the United States. But I think this is a way in which we, uh, when we deal with the pandemic, that's what we do, right? We particularly, perhaps in a way, follow the rules. We may be more likely to worry about the consequences if we don't wear a mask, for example, if the mask, uh, the face covering rule is in place. So I think those are things in how it's, it's the one way in which um, yellow people experience the pandemic and COVID. I think it's very interesting. So there's really a dimension of rule following. And so because when it comes to public health, sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, it's because of the way you experience um, having more uh, epidemics, uh, perhaps, or how you view hygiene. So that I think it's quite interesting that there's also a psychology aspect uh, around that. So you identify as being a yellow woman, you've explained greatly, but did you identify that way prior to the pandemic and how it has developed for you later on? If you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, Sabrina, actually, I don't think um, I identify myself as a yellow woman before the pandemic. So I think like many people um, for the longest time before I learned about the history of the yellow power movement, I always thought yellow was a derogatory term. So I never really identified myself as a yellow woman. It came about really at the height of the anti-Asian hate uh, that was happening during COVID. Because COVID-19 originated from Wuhan, China, many people quickly called it uh, Wuhan virus, right? They gave it a lot of like derogatory names um, associated with, um, with China. So incidents of East Asians getting beat up in public spaces were also happening across the world. I myself was, was assaulted on the streets of Edinburgh in July 2020. And others who are not Chinese were quick to distance themselves from the Chinese identity, right? You see a lot of people, you see a lot of other East Asians or, or yellow people, you know, wearing t-shirts or, or, you know, or like publicly claiming that, oh, I'm not Chinese. So while I understand that East Asians other than the Chinese might do so to protect themselves, right? Because no one wants to get beat up in public spaces. While I understand that, I don't think it helps with stopping the hate against Asians as a structural racism, as a form of structural racism, because I believe that structural racism can really only be tackled through collective efforts. So only when we stand in solidarity with one another can we stop the Asian hate. So I was particularly, like I said before, I was particularly inspired by the Black Lives Movement, which gave me a lot of thought about how we could unite as yellow people to reclaim that power and to resume the yellow power movement. So I really want to say that my identity or my identification of, of, of yellow woman really strengthened during the, the pandemic. I'm so sorry to hear about the assault. That's absolutely terrible. But thanks for sharing of that. I think something really interesting that you were saying is that we have to reclaim this name, come together, really inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement. I think I want to wonder what you think about the fact that it might be quite difficult. It's, it's a huge challenge because of the cultural, the strong kind of cultural ties to being Serbian and to be obeying and to be worried about coming across as difficult, especially when the virus originated from China and there has been anti-Asian hate as a result of it. I kind of see it as, as quite difficult. I don't know what you think, Sarah. I, want, I wondered your thoughts on this. Not that I think it's impossible, but yeah. On the one hand, while, I mean, it is a stereotype. I First, I want to highlight that it's a stereotype. Not all Asians are quiet 
and obedient, even though some may be because of the circumstances, right, that I've just laid out, like why some people may choose to stay on the quiet side. But I do think that not everyone is like that, right? Not all yellow people are like that. And I think um, increasingly, people understand the power of being angry. And I would really like people to hold on to that idea or that, well, I shouldn't call it idea, but that practice of being angry, because I think anger can get us somewhere, right? I think it's really um, when we're apathetic, I think that is when change cannot happen. But if we are angry, and if we hold on to that anger, and if we are motivated by that anger to make a change, then I think that could overcome the, some of the issues that you just laid out. Yes, very inspiring. So I hope that everybody can really take from that. So coming back a little bit to this model minority, actually, that you mentioned, this is a really interesting term. So I wondered if I could ask you, in what situations that you faced, did you feel that legal issues surrounding the pandemic and your identity in particular were racialized, especially when you consider, so kind of similar to my previous question, that the East Southeast Asian diaspora is seen as this model minority, as in a group that is generally seen as achieving kind of more, whether that is in the way of socioeconomic success or otherwise than the average? Um, I think, so regarding the, the legal issues surrounding the pandemic and my identity, the first thing that came to my mind was um, the feeling of, um, of relief when the UK finally passed a recommendation on face covering. So I don't think it was ever like a law, right? It was a recommendation. And it was such a relief for me because dating back to March 2020, when the pandemic first started, or when it was first determined as a, as a pandemic, right, by the WHO, a lot of people still didn't know what was going on at the time. Coming from, um, from Taiwan, that has experienced SARS back in 2003, the Taiwanese government had recommended face covering very, very early on, I think as early as maybe February 2020, before the rest of the world knew what was going on. And because I was closely following the news and the government measures in Taiwan, I wanted to wear a mask when I went out. But I remember in March 2020, before we went into a lockdown in the UK, I didn't feel comfortable going out in a mask because we were already hearing about incidents of East Asians being um, beat up. So imagine, a, imagine a, a woman with black hair stands out and also um, wearing a mask on the street, right? That's drawing attention to myself. So in a way, I, I felt like I couldn't go out in a mask before the face covering uh, recommendation was made. So when later on, when the UK government recommended face covering or mandated face covering in public spaces like the supermarkets and whatnot, I, it was such a relief to me because I no longer stood out. It was okay for me to wear a mask to you know, protect myself from, from coronavirus, but I no longer stood out. So I think to talk about how a policy is really intersected with one's race and gender. I think that's an example that came to my mind. And like I mentioned earlier, I was assaulted on the streets of Edinburgh in July 2020. And I thought what was interesting about that was the Scotland police or the Edinburgh police was very, very helpful. They were very quick to catch a guy who spat on me, actually. So, but what was interesting was when I was telling my friends about that incident and about how quick the police acted, the response I got was actually that 
Well, I'm lucky that the police actually paid attention to this case because if I were a white person, the police wouldn't have cared. But because the police wouldn't want to escalate it as some sort of hate crime, so they had to act, right? So I think in a way, it also speaks about how race and gender really plays a role in what goes on in the in the pandemic. So I just wanted to point that out because I think even in an unfortunate event like that, it was almost like people were thinking that my race was an advantage, despite what I had experienced, right, in terms of assault. But going back to what Adrian was asking me about, you know, being a model min minority, I think the pervasive model minority myth is making it really, really difficult for yellow people because it has really obscured the situation or the experiences that yellow people or East Asians experience. That false idea, right, constructed during the uh, civil rights era to stimulate racial injustice movements suggests that Asians, regardless where you are, right, Asians in, in Britain or in the States or in other parts of Western societies are more successful than other ethnic minorities because of hard work education and inherently law-abiding natures. So racial justice could really be emphasized in the way that there's a connection between this damaging stereotype and the violence that we see on the news, right? Again, with, you know, East Asians getting beat up. So I think the model minority is really a myth and we really need to bust this myth because if we don't, then people are always going to think that Asians always succeed. They never experience violence the way that Black people do. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, it's right. We are a lot more privileged than Black people. For example, we are we may be less likely to get racial profiled when it comes to like crime. When we go to a bar, we're less likely to be searched than Black people. So those are, those things are true. But at the same time, when we uphold the racial uh, the model minority myth, and we believe that. Asians never experience, then we presume that Asians never experience racism or discrimination, which, I, which is why I think is also very dangerous. And I think also it's really dangerous because it obscures the idea that there are all different kinds of Asians, right? There is variation among Asians, right? I think, again, going back to what um, Adrian was saying about class, I think there's this idea that Asians are always from like middle or upper class, but we forget that that's actually not the case. Sarah, I think this is really interesting. It's interesting to me what you're saying. I also thought when you were talking about people of color as well, it's not a race to, to suffering, right? We're, we're just meant to be equal, right? It's not about suffering more and then deserving more. It's about all being equal um, and not having to suffer. But I think it's interesting what you talked about, your experience with the face mask, how you felt your identity and the law intersected in the context both of race and gender, and how you felt about it all. If you can talk to us a little bit more about this. This goes back to what I said earlier, right, about how I think the law is, you know, just a set of rules that people follow. So um, some sort of social order can be maintained and how the law supposedly is equal, but in actuality, it's actually not equitable. So I want to make a distinction between equality and equity. What I mean by that is that the law applies to um, everyone equally, right? Regard supposedly, regardless of your, your class, your gender, or your race, the law should apply to you the same across all groups of people in society. But in actuality, it doesn't really work that way, right? It doesn't really take context into consideration and it's often colorblind. So on the surface, the law may seem like uh, it's fair, but it's really not. I'll give you an example. I think well, you are both academics here, so you are probably aware of the family leave policy. 
that is granted to both men and women academics actually benefit um, academic men a lot more, right? Research shows that when people go on family leave, right, when they have a baby, men actually publish more. They generate more research, so they publish more. So in the end, when women and men are evaluated on their performance, for example, when it comes time to promotion, then people may look at the two CVs and be like, well, that guy went on paternity leave and he was still able to produce that much research. How come you as a woman went on uh, maternity leave, but you couldn't do much? I think in the end, we know that even though family policy like this is supposed to benefit both men and women, but in the end, it's really men who benefit from it because we don't take the context into account, which is the fact that women are still the ones who are responsible for for um, for childcare, right? Most of the time. So I think to answer your question about my own experiences, I think there's been a lot of implicit biases I experience when it comes to the law. Or again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know if they count as a law. But supposedly, right? We shouldn't. Um, for example, in the uh, and this applies to all other sectors as well. But in the academia, which is, you know, the environment I'm mostly familiar with, there shouldn't be any pay gaps. But we do know that racial and gender pay gaps exist. I myself have experienced such a racial and gender pay gap on a personal level at pretty much every institution I have been in. And I think this is not an unusual experience for a lot of women of color. And I think this sort of bias, right, exists when people undetermine how much one deserves to be paid, even though, you know, we're not supposed to have discrimination based on sex, for example, right? But it happens. So it goes for pay gaps, it goes um, for promotion process, right? So I think a lot of that is intersected with race and gender. It's true that perhaps we're supposed to be blind to these inequalities, but it's also because of those, um, those rules to begin with, that they are maybe not purposely blind to them, but they're unaware of them, right? Because of um, the identity that they carry, and most oftentimes as white males. I think it's a, it's a very interesting account that you're giving here. I also really thought about the pandemic when you were talking about the family leave policy thing, if we're going to bring it back to this context as well, because exactly as you say, when men take time off to look after their children, equally with women who take time off for mat leave, in the pandemic, everybody was at home. And who was it in the context of academia who produced and published so much more because of the supposed time off, as we might call it, if we were at home working from home instead of commuting? It was, of course, men. And there was a lot of statistics around this. And why is that? Because there is this responsibility, caring burden that falls onto women when they were at home looking after the children, etc. So I think that really puts that into the context of uh, COVID-19. And that's really, really interesting and also quite a sad fact. Right. Regarding the COVID impact, I think we're still in the early age to really tell what it is or the extent to which it's really making an impact. But I think in, in a few years' time, if we just look at the number or the gender breakdown and the gender and racial breakdown of um, people who are receiving grants and people who are publishing, I think we can really see a, a COVID impact that differs for men and women. And even if it's not in the statistics, and perhaps we would say as an experience goes, it was much more hard and we would have to have pushed really strongly to get places. And, and I think that's something that's not always captured by statistics. So it's something we will have to think about and perhaps an area for uh, further research. But bringing it back a bit to the pandemic and especially in the UK, and I know you're not in the UK at the moment, but 
it's around this time now that a lot of things are, let's say, trying to appear to go back to normal. So a lot has changed in these years of the pandemic. And I wondered to what extent your feelings about your identity have also changed as the pandemic has kind of gone on. Have they changed at all as things kind of also developed throughout the pandemic? And maybe we knew a little bit more about the virus and the Black Lives Matter movement came about and the Stop Asian Hate movement came about. How do you think you have also changed maybe as a person or how you perceive your identity? Adrian, I really appreciate your question because it's given me an opportunity to to have some sort of self-reflection. So I don't know if I feel like my identity has changed at all, you know, throughout the pandemic. But I do have to say that I feel like I've become a lot more aware of my identity or perhaps what I mean, uh, or, 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 or more specifically, my identity that has um, that have always ignored. To give you an example, right? So far, I've been talking a lot about my experiences as a woman of color. So a lot of the focus has been on race and gender and migrant status, for example. And all of these things don't necessarily give me any privilege. But throughout the pandemic, I do think I've become a lot more aware of the identities that give me privileges in life. To give an example, we know that you know face covering has been has been a recommendation probably um, in a lot of universities. So in classrooms, um, a lot of lectures, course organizer wear a mask. But what we often forget is about how some people may rely on on lip reading. So when you are when you cover your face to protect yourself from coronavirus, it is something that that we we automatically think that we should do. But we forget that not everyone is able to, to understand you when you cover your lips. So I think I've become a lot more aware of my identity as an able-bodied person. And another identity that I've come to appreciate or pay attention to because it's given me so much privilege is my identity as a cisgender heterosexual woman. I worked on this research that looked at the LGBT plus community in South Korea. And in that particular paper, what I found was that during the pandemic, a lot of the governments are trying to trace and track COVID patients so they can control it. But if you are an LGBT plus person, if you're supposed to, you know, use a QR code to indicate your whereabouts, so if you were infected or if someone where you have been is infected, you can get notified. But for a lot of um, LGBT plus people, because it's still a stigma to be gay, so you may not necessarily want to reveal your whereabouts. So to me, I feel like, you know, through my own research on LGBT plus people in South Korea, I've come to really recognize the privilege I have as a heterosexual person. Because, you know, I don't have to lie about my whereabouts. I don't have to worry about the stigma attached to places I've been, right? And we need to remember that a lot of these um, LGBT plus people go to these places that may be stigmatized because they never had a, uh, they never had a, a chance or the opportunity to express their sexuality in a public space. So I think I've really come to appreciate the privilege I have with identities I often ignore. the South Korean LGBT community, this this actually got a lot of uh, news attention early on. I remember these news stories about uh, people going to the Itaewon clubbing area and really, really being scared when the information all came out 
which arguably then the government said was necessary to fight COVID-19. Tell us where you were, tell us where you went, who you were with, without realizing that this infringed a lot on their privacy. And then we have to think about the balance between obviously fighting a pandemic and one's uh, private life and their identity. And I think that's a really, really interesting question. Yeah, that's exactly the incident I was referring to, right? Because that's a district or an area in Seoul where a lot of people go gay clubbing. So it's not necessarily a place that people want others to know about. Um, So yeah, so it's definitely become a, a dilemma. And I really have come to appreciate that I don't have that dilemma in my life. Absolutely. I think that resonates a lot with me as well. I think it's been a moment of great self-reflection for many. And to look back on on how lucky we are, um, we can highlight that. I, I myself always felt very safe in my childhood. I never questioned police brutality, but most probably because I'm a woman and, and I'm, I'm a mixed race, so I'm lighter skinned. So all of th- these things were really on my mind as well. So I think that's that's very interesting. So do you think that the law has in the context of the pandemic and uh, you're being a yellow woman helped or hindered you in a way? I mean, in the sense that uh, of helping you feeling more protected from COVID-19, the virus itself, or more generally from other injustices? That's a really interesting question. And I really had to think hard about it. I think a lot of the experiences that we have, right, regardless of whether or not we're, we're, we're yellow or not, or we're white people, I think a lot of times there have been these impacts that are indirectly related to COVID-19. So I actually don't know the pandemic or COVID-19 itself has really affected me in terms of my, um, my identity. But I want to highlight or discuss other things that went on during the pandemic that I think have had a, an impact. As an educator um, who had to teach uh, online throughout the pandemic, so I taught online for the last two years, all my lectures, all my seminars, all the discussions took place online. And I think what was really scary or uh, a bit concerning for me was the fact that I am a migrant yellow woman teaching um, gender and race in Chinese politics in in this context where everything is taking place virtually. And I think it's important to remember that teaching virtually also comes with consequences because everything is surveyed when you teach online. To give you an example, so I taught for two years in a row during the pandemic, I taught a an introductory course called Understanding Gender in the Contemporary World at the University of Edinburgh. In that particular course, I teach my students about gender and I teach my students about intersectionality. And one of the examples I use in my class to demonstrate what intersectionality means is the Xinjiang uh, human rights violation. However, every year I get complaints from students about that because a lot of my students would like me to remove my course lecture um, on Xinjiang human rights violation because they don't think that it's accurate. Sarah, I wonder if you could just quickly let our listeners who may not be so familiar with the Xinjiang situation explain a little bit about that. So the Chinese Communist Party, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, really has this idea of pursuing the China dream, right? So there has been this discourse of the China dream where they unify uh, 
all people, regardless of ethnicity and、um, religion and whatnot,、um, under this one China policy, which is also why a lot of the people, the ethnic minorities in Xinjiang, who are not Hong Chinese, under the Xi Jinping's leadership, they would be converted. To to Han Chinese, so、uh, in Xinjiang, a lot of these、uh, Muslims are put in camps to work, to、um, live together, to learn about Chinese culture, to learn about Chinese language and whatnot. So you know, in other words, they could assimilate. I think that's a whole goal, right? That's a big goal of of、um, Xi Jinping too, which is to、um, have one China where everyone is homogenous. So to make a long story short about what the human rights violation in Xinjiang is, what happens there is that a lot of these women are Muslim women are forced to marry Han Chinese. So the Muslim bloodline could be eliminated, eradicated, whereas the Han Chinese bloodline could carry on. Again, this is not unique to China. We've seen this throughout history in other parts of the world, right? Where where women's reproductive、uh, rights or women's reproduction is controlled by the state. So I don't want to paint it as if、um, China was not progressive or, or or stood out or anything like that, because I really want to say that you know patriarchy exists everywhere. But that is what's happening in in Xinjiang right now. And in addition to putting you know, for example, making women forcing women to marry Han Chinese people or putting on、um, Chinese、uh, Muslim children in these on、um, Chinese camps to learn about Chinese, there's also factories in in Xinjiang where Muslims are basically working like slaves, where they're not compensated financially much. So there's been a lot of news, independent studies on this. So in my own course, where I teach about intersectionality, I obviously use this example to demonstrate how gender, race, and religion. All intersect with one another in shaping one's political experiences. That example, in particular, has drawn somewhat of a backlash. And I think going back to what I was saying earlier about the context of teaching virtually, because it's so easy nowadays to share our course content, especially with a lecture video or recording what is said or discussed in a seminar. I think there's this threat, or there's this fear that educators like me, who talk about these human rights violations imposed upon the CCP, will be reported to the CCP.、Um, to give you an example, recently there was a study that was done. I think it was published on、um, somewhere. It was published in the International Journal of Human Rights. If I remember correctly, over forty percent of UK academics have indicated that they would self-censor. They will not teach anything that's controversial about China or the CCP because they're afraid of the backlash from Chinese students. So yeah, I think that's the the reality that we live in, and I think it is a byproduct of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I was about to ask you,、uh, what was the nature of the backlash? If you can speak to that, because I think the listeners might might be curious. And who did you see more as a group in a position to that specific topic lecture? And、uh, th- that would be of interest, I think. I think a lot of the backlash came from、um, Chinese students. And again, I don't want to homogenize Chinese students because、um, I did. I have received、um, multiple emails from Chinese students who tell me that they really appreciate that I cover this in my course because I feel like this is not something they could have heard or learned、uh, while they're in China, and also this is not something that they could、um, have discussed with their with their、um, Chinese peers. So I don't want to homogenize Chinese students, but 
most of the complaints come from Chinese students. And in a way, I could understand why the complaints come from Chinese students, right? And I think this is an excellent question because this goes back to what I said earlier about the history of um, East Asians or Chinese people being seen as derogatory, right? As backwards, as weak and all that, right? So with the rise of um, the economic power of China, this is finally the time when China has an opportunity to um, be a leader in the world. So for a lot of um, people who grow up in an authoritarian regime, they don't understand why the Western media will always bias against um, China, right? Why would you paint China as something backwards? Why would you paint the Chinese Communist Party as something that's violating the human rights? Because in a way, they may feel that, you know, your definition as someone in the West, right? Your definition of human rights is very different from our definition of human rights in, in China, right? I mean, that's, we can obviously discuss whether or not there should be just one universal definition of human rights. But I think this is how a lot of um, our students who are from China are um, process their thoughts. So they think that, you know, finally, it's a time where we are rising and yet you have to keep us down. So I think this is um, why some students may feel like, well, why do you only report on the negative spread? I mean, there's a lot of beautiful things in China. There's a lot of great things happening in China. But how come the Western media never reports on that? So I, in a way, I could relate to that, going back to what I said earlier about how historically um, East Asians or yellow people have always been seen as inferior, right? So in a way, I could relate to that. But my other thought is also that if our ultimate goal is to make our society better, right, regardless of whether it's a UK society or the Chinese society, if our ultimate goal is to make the world a better place, we must learn from our mistakes. We must correct the wrongdoings, be critical, because the only way for you to improve a problem is to, to see the problem. And the only way for you to see a problem is if you critically challenge it. I always tell my students this. Yeah, I understand that there's beautiful things in China and there's also ugly things in China. But if you don't want to talk about the ugly things, that's fine. But whether or not you talk about it, it's always going to be there. Just because I don't talk about Xinjiang rights, uh, human rights violation doesn't mean they don't exist. So it's better if we talk about it, then we can do something about it. Then we can make uh, the world a better place, a more inclusive place for um, people with different oppressed identities. You're highlighting with that particular example, kind of a, a trend that we've been having and the discussion we've been having on the podcast about the line between justice and law, the importance of morality, how rules are shaped by their context, uh, and also the importance of critical legal thinking. We've been hammering on a lot about this in our discussions, but to be critical does not necessarily to be negative and only shedding negative light. But as you say, if there is an issue, it won't go away because we don't talk about it. So it's about uncovering and shedding light on issues to create more equality, I guess. So obviously, there's been a lot of discussions about, you know, how we could determine what source is valid and stuff like that. But I think as a migrant person teaching in the UK, where the home office is surveying our, our what we do, how we live, how we work and whatnot, right? I think as a migrant person, I think we would all need a lot more protection when it comes to... For example, how the university, as well as the, 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 the country, the UK, exercises academic freedom, especially when the Hong Kong national security law was passed, which could affect not just the Chinese nationals, right, but pretty much anyone else who sort of like criticized the Chinese Communist Party. I think that's when 
as a sort of like as a byproduct of the pandemic where I had to teach virtually. I think that is something that has affected me the most. It reminds me of when last year, Kemi Badenoch MP said that we were not supposed to be teaching white supremacy or those kinds of critical critical arguments. And, and then that reminded me of way back as an EU lawyer, when another uh, Chris Heaton MP said that uh, he wanted a list of academics teaching Brexit in universities. And it's just so flabbergasting sometimes to hear these things. And absolutely, it really speaks to the theme of the podcast uh, that Sabrina was mentioning, but also that we've been hammering on about the fact that you can't just close your eyes and say, there's no problems, there's no problems, everything's perfect, and ignore them because that's not going to change anything. So thank you so much, Sarah, for bringing all of this. And this brings us to our very last question that we always end our episodes on by asking you, in your opinion, does context matter? And what your understanding of when we say law in context actually is? I think, again, we reach this point and we always know what our guests are going to say. But if you could just explain to our listeners what you think. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, context matters, right? And I think to demonstrate what I mean by context matters, here's a little bit of a um, shameless plug of my own research. A part of my research focuses on the political representation of women. And uh, one particular project I've ever worked on is replicating the study that has been done on the impact, the, the, the symbolic impact of women's political representation in Western societies, East and Southeast Asia. So to give you a little bit of um, background on this particular strand of literature, a lot of scholars have found that women political leaders in Western democracies have served as role models. They inspire other people to um, come out and you know vote and protest on the streets and to participate in politics. But what I find in my own what I've found in my own research on East and Southeast Asia is that such a, such women's political representation actually has a backlash effect on women's political participation in Asia. Even though in my own research, I couldn't explain why that is, but to bring back to the question of, you know, like understanding of law and context, my suspicion about why Asian political leaders don't inspire other Asian women to participate in politics is that when we talk about gender equality in Asia, we don't, or in the world, we don't really talk about it comprehensively. So what I mean by that is that oftentimes when we think about gender equality, we only look at perhaps one dimension of gender equality, for example, the legal dimension or the political dimension or social dimension or economic dimension. But my argument is that in a lot of the um, East and Southeast Asian countries, women actually have high political status, in a way, high political status. To give an example, Taiwan actually has one of the, the highest percentage of women legislature, legislators in the world. So far, over 40% of the national parliament in Taiwan consists of women, which is very, very high. I think that's double what it is in the United States. But on the other hand, when women in these contexts don't really have also equal economic status, legal status and social status, when you have a discrepancy between one particular form of gender equality versus other forms of gender equality, then it's really hard for people to really buy this belief that, oh, 
women are holding political positions, then that means our lives are much better as women. So we'll go out and, and, and participate in politics. So I think my understanding, going back to your question, is that context matters, right? This may work in Western democracies, but how women's political representation may work differently in other contexts. And I think that goes back to how we view gender equality, how we need to view gender equality comprehensively. Thank you so much, Sarah. A really comprehensive and really thought-provoking answer. Thank you so much for being such a fantastic guest on the podcast today to talk about such an interesting area. And we really look forward to hearing and reading more of your research. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks. You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode.